Hello, and welcome to the first ever Asset Allocator podcast. Uh, my name is Dan Jones. I'm the editor of Asset Allocator, and today we're very pleased to be joined by Stephen Peters, investment manager at Barclays, to talk about some of the big issues in UK fund selection. Coming up, we're going to be discussing Mark Barnett's reemergence at Telworth and, of course, uh, ESG investing, specifically uh, how it relates to UK equity funds. But first, before all that, my colleague and co-host Dave Baxter is going to set the scene for the main topic of the day. Dave. That's right. It's now been six months since the US election results and the announcement of the Pfizer biotech vaccine's efficacy. Over that time, we've seen a rotation from growth to value in equity markets and more recently, a spike in bond yields as investors start to position for economic recovery. Today, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, we're asking how big a moment last November proved for wealth portfolios and what the rest of the year might look like in terms of asset allocation and fund selection. So, Stephen, I'll, I'll start with a couple of points um, for you. Uh, of course, in retrospect, again, uh, can early November be seen now as a turning point, um, if only for certain investment styles, if not the overall direction of risk assets? Or would you say it's still too soon to say? Yeah, hi, David and Dan. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think there's there's two answers here. I think many people would like to see it as a significant turning point. Many people have positioned themselves hoping, and I think hope is the right word for a um, for a recovery in, in the value style uh, in, in many asset classes or many uh, kind of equity markets, but maybe not necessarily expecting it and certainly not expecting it to happen as quickly and as severely as it did uh, at the start of November. Whether it is or not, however, is a, is a difficult question to be sure about yet. We've been here before. We have had short, sharp value rallies before. I'm thinking after uh, after Brexit and the end of 2018. Um, but uh, I think we'll need to see it last for a little bit young, longer yet and some more uh, conducive, maybe economic conditions to be to be more certain that it is sustainable. It's quite it's quite interesting. I, I've been thinking obviously about this and we've been writing about this quite a lot. And, and just to think of, kind of the concept of, of turning points and and how they, they do happen. Um, as you say, it was notable, I think, in, in November, the sort of the speed of the the reaction to that first announcement, then the second vaccine announcement and so on, um, and the US election results as well, which in some ways are quite different from from what's happened in, in previous, you know, quote unquote turning points. I always think of uh, Mario Draghi, you know, whatever it takes, which which uh, uh, always struck me at the time. There was several weeks, almost a month, maybe longer even before that was kind of noted as, a, oh, yes, this is a big, a big moment for Europe. You know, when that first that statement was first made, it seemed to me to take a bit longer. This time is the opposite, where everyone, you know, moved in very quickly, and then we seem to have spent several months saying, "Well, can this last?" As as you said, Stephen, I think people have been burned a lot of times before by by value rallies over the past few years. So it's quite it's quite interesting from that point of view. I, won- I wonder what what your sort of take is from from the investment perspective. You know, looking now, I know you you focus quite a lot on the UK, that kind of thing. Has your thinking changed materially over the past few months in terms of how? You're planning for the for the months and years ahead, even. I, I don't think so, or I, it hasn't. Rather, we have been positioned broadly balanced, but with a bias towards value within our UK within the UK funds that I that I manage. 
and that's been generally you know quite a difficult position to maintain but always in at the forefront of your mind and the argument is just the value uh, present within the uk market and it was just q1 uh, of last year bef- was just a you know it was a, just a very very uh, difficult time um, well particularly march the the magnitude of the the disparity between value and growth just got so excessive and you could have spoken to any number of uk managers who are just saying you know this is getting extreme now we are at our most extreme uh, kind of uh, dislike for value for 30 years or more um so no my overall position hasn't uh, changed mainly because i you know i was posi- the funds i managed were positioned to benefit from the, the changing conditions and they did no particular foresight on my part i wasn't trying to time that but having said that it is a it's a it's a nice position to be in longer term i mean we will see there's a lot more people talking positively about the uk now um there's always bumps in the road be it kind of political or economic or or health wise but you know if we do see a more stable political environment if we do see continuing uh belief that inflation is is coming back into the system more obviously then uh, that would probably be a, a good environment in which value managers to to perform well but um you know we we will see we're only uh, we're only you know four and a bit months through the year is um is the uk sort of the main route you're seeing into the kind of value play or are there are kind of other interesting options um i think uh, for UK investors, the UK is probably the most obvious value play. There is cheapness elsewhere around the world, if you believe certain managers. I mean, everybody always talks about Japan. Um, you know, the the com- there's a very common and well known story by asset allocators and fund selectors who know about the you know the, the value available in Japan. Also, in in the broad emerging markets, and and also potentially in Europe. Um, for sure. But again, um, the UK is just probably because of the makeup of the UK market, mm. quite an easy and obvious way of, uh, of, of achieving or, ben- or taking that, that bet to value if you want to do it. What, what we've seen looking at our, uh, the databases we, we have and fund selection, asset allocation, kind of uh, spreadsheets, if you will, that we, that we run. It's quite interesting looking at some of those points. I mean, Japan, I think Japan had a really roaring start to the year or certainly a few months ago now and people are were looking at it again. But again, it's a case of being burned a couple of times before with Japan. I think it's still, it's always destined to remain a small part of portfolios for that reason. But Europe, we have in particular written about, I think um, uh, this month a little bit, there seems to be quite a lot of, of analyst interest, if not actual fund uh fund buying you know the, the again there's a skepticism over europe i think which seems to me and seems from the data to be quite hard to shift and might take a little bit longer there than even with the uk as in people will need to see a sustained uptick in performance before they're actually looking at europe again seems to be what the data <laughs> is telling us but one other interesting point maybe is um on a global basis um i mean we're, we're seeing you know a shift slightly towards you know both thematic investing, specialised equity funds, generic global funds as well. I mean, again, I know you're you're mainly focused on the UK, but it seems to me to be a situation where people are looking at a market now where we've obviously had a, a great run-up for growth over the past decade. And okay, over a much shorter period, six months, we've had a good run for value. Now people are kind of wondering how to how to diversify. 
either beyond that or in a way that, that sort of takes them away from their existing preferences. And I don't know, is that something you, you, you sympathize with, that kind of shift to more specialist funds? You know, ESG obviously is a big part of that as well. I, I, I definitely sympathize. I think it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, I mean, we, we all work in this industry, but we're all aware of the, uh, the foibles and the, and the weaknesses of the industry. And, and one of them is, you know, people, this is, uh, there are some incredible marketeers and product development people working within investment management. And um, if there is a trend to jump on, uh, there will very soon be a, a product a fund in which to, uh, with which to exploit it. Um, so I have sympathy with people. You know, lots of people want to back these big global mega trends, uh, for want to, you know, to coin a phrase. And it, intuitively, it makes uh, it makes sense uh, to try and back, you know, whatever it might be, biotech or uh, you know, healthcare or you know, I don't know, uh, alternative meats and things like that. Um, in practice, it's really difficult. And those of us who have been around the industry long enough remember this trend emerging in a slightly smaller way in the early 2000s you know there were mega trend funds and 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 they're not they're not around today put it that way um so i think i think it's difficult um i do think it's difficult and in terms of the you know value to growth or uh, growth to value switch people will need more time um only only now i think are you starting to see the mainstream media recognize really what's going on and in the way in which they do it, saying maybe you shouldn't own the the names that we all know that you know the traditional high quality growth long term, you know buy and do nothing type fund managers, um, and only now are they starting to say maybe you should look at different styles and different approaches. It will take some time for that to uh, gain more traction and and maybe lead to more uh, continued performance from from uh, from value investors. It's interesting on that point. You you mentioned the the performance and the struggle to survive. Uh, I was reading just the other day, so I think some Morningstar stats on you know the number of thematic funds that actually outperform the mm-hmm. all country world index is, I think, less than a third over five years and less than five percent over ten years, something like that. So that is definitely a a warning from uh, from history. But um, what what about um the idea that you know people are allocating even you know professional investors, professional fund selectors that they're Looking at global funds as a way to as a way to almost well maybe not quite wash their hands of of uh, regional asset allocation but you know to hand it over to the managers and say well it's tricky out there we we you know are going to let you kind of allocate in that way is that is that something that's happening do you think or is it about something I, else yeah I mean it definitely happens I mean different firms uh, have different views on it certain I mean my own business we have a uh, we have an asset allocation team and they have their own views and make their own tilts and decisions. We also do consider global global funds, but uh, um, but in the, in the main, um, our managers that we select are investing in a, in a region on a regional or country basis. Um, but around the industry, I get it. I completely get it. I mean, and it's, again, it's probably just one of the factors is the makeup of the index. We all know. The U.S. is fifty percent plus of a global index. We all know that uh, you know China is a huge part of of the emerging market and the index, and, and increasingly the global index. And you know, as a fund selector, you know, do you want to have of your asset allocation? Do you want to have? Can you pick five U.S. funds, active, active, or blend of passive and active funds? Can you pick five? Can you find five that you are, are happy enough so you don't have over overly concentrated? 
uh, portfolios by manager. It's difficult. So I do understand. I completely get the the desire for global funds. You know, in in former former jobs, I've picked global funds. There are some very good managers out there across both value and, and growth styles. So I definitely get the attraction. On the flip side, of course, people will say, well, you know, it's hard to find somebody who's good at investing in Asia as well as investing in the US. Can you do it, you know, one one man or woman from a desk in the West End or in Edinburgh? Or can you do it? Or do you have to have a team of analysts around the world? I don't think there's a definite answer, but um, global investing probably is a lot more uh, resource intensive than maybe regional or country investing. In terms of the um, kind of growth and value plays, um, I guess, what are your views on, I suppose, one way you could play it is you could sort of go for some of those funds you've mentioned, which have been very popular to kind of buy and hold kind of very growthy names. Um, and equally now, with the last six months, we're seeing some of those kind of very, I suppose, resilient value managers who survived a very rough decade, finally um, seeing a bit of a better time vids. Um, does it make sense to kind of, um, use those funds on the edges to express a view on value and growth, or is it more the kind of generalist funds and that kind of barbell approach? Um, what's kind of easier to manage? Uh, it's again, it's so difficult. I mean, the temptation, of course, in most asset classes is to have a an index core and then express your views around the edges using more style driven funds. Very easy to say, very hard to do. Um, actually having a a repeatable process in order to make those asset allocation changes is hard. I don't know of anybody um, who, quote-unquote, has predicted this value rally of the magnitude that it, that it happened with uh, in November. I'm sure in you know 12 months' time, the media will be full of, you know, XYZ manager who predicted it happening. That, all, that is always the way. Um, you know, how many, however many people that predicted the financial crisis in 2007 – and how many people you know that said they did it two years later in the press? Uh, you know, big, very different numbers. Um, so it's it's hard. I mean, from my my perspective, my own personal perspective is to take a long term valuation approach to your to one's asset allocation. As I said, we only I only look at the UK. So pick the managers you like with a style you like. Be di- diverse and, and don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Um, but then gently tilt in, uh, gently tilt away from you know the prevailing wind and try and be a bit contrarian because um, you know if you do what everybody else does, then um, you'll just get the same result as everybody else. Again, it's hard to do, especially when performance is against you. Um, you know, very very few people pick up on flaws in your process, be an investment manager's process or anybody else, when performance is good. Um, but flaws perceived or otherwise will certainly be spotted when um, performance is not so good. I was going to say, um, forgive the very extremely tired question in 2021, but, um, you know, active, passive, that balance, you know, there's been a lot of people saying, you know, now's the time to go more active, you know, really drill down, find that that um, style you want, that kind of thing. It strikes me in some ways, if you are looking for a blend approach, then, you know, buying an index, some indices are still pretty well um, suited to a combination of growth and value. I mean, do you, do you, think in a very broad terms that that now is you know slightly better better time for active than it was a year ago or or is it much the same as it has been all along um again it comes down to your time horizon as an investor doesn't it i mean if you if you can afford to invest personally or you know for your your, you know if your clients for five ten years and you're able to 
um, you know, t- willingly take the vicissitudes of markets, then then uh, you know that that behold, that allows you to do different things. That allows you to be more active. That allows you to back managers who are you know have a good track record or you believe will have a good long term track record, but maybe whose style is is against you or against against the current prevailing circumstances of the market. Um, if you're more short term, then simply invest in um, you know in the index and, and don't worry about it. Go and do something slightly more uh, you know something different in your life. I mean, what I, but what I would say is that um, you've got to know where active works best and why. So, for instance, in the UK, because of the makeup of the UK market, it's so heavily screwed to the largest companies. You, you know, most active managers have made good relative returns over many very many years by being invested in mid and small caps and having larger weights in mid and small caps um so on you know uh, like the s&p spiva data shows that around the world the uk market is one of the easiest ones to add value in being an active manager simply because managers have taken such big mid and small cap weights however today that's all really different the really cheap companies cheap on PEs or, you know, earnings yields or whatever, dividend yields, are um, are the large ones, you know, the banks and the oil companies. Now, they present their own challenges. You know, it's not a recommendation or those health warnings. But if you just look at valuations across the UK market, the cheapest companies do appear to be the very largest ones and the very smallest ones. So if you go and buy a a large cap tracker fund, if, you, if that's, you know, it's what you choose to do, then maybe you are going to do quite well. But do you? But we're going to come on to ESG. Maybe you don't want to buy uh, mining companies or oil companies or things like that because of the you know the ESG challenges they face. It is interesting, as as you say, and notable. Maybe even the contrast there. As you were speaking, so it made me think of the US, where obviously we've had the you know fangs, the big, the big mega caps really driving returns, and then over the last six months you've had small cap or twelve months even you've had a huge small cap rally as well. But it's notable that even that rally has really cooled off in the past couple of months. So in the US, it's almost almost the exact opposite dynamic, where the, the large caps and the small caps have had huge runs, and people are kind of wondering what to do next. Yeah, it's it's very difficult, and people would like to tell you what will happen but often it's what they want to happen uh is what they're telling you simply because their portfolios are positioned that way it's just basic human psychology um people tell you what they want to happen rather than what will happen that makes sense sure okay we're going to stick with the uk uh but take a slightly different angle now a little more specific looking at some manager moves which are always a big part of fund selection for better for worse uh mark barnett particularly notable move of recent weeks, his re-emergence at Telworth Investments, uh, which was quite uh, surprising, perhaps, I think, to, to some people, uh, is A, his return perhaps so quickly, and, and B, uh, a kind of small boutique firm like this has raised um, raised some interest, and perhaps some eyebrows as well. Stephen, what are your kind of thoughts on, on this, uh, this move? I think it's a really interesting move. Um, Mark was obviously best known to many in the industry uh, through running the investment trust that he did, obviously, uh, Perpetual Income and Growth for many, many years, and latterly Edinburgh. So he was he became very well known and very highly regarded by the investment trust community, but maybe less well known to the open-ended world. His open-ended fund was quite small and um, and uh, was obviously, but, you know, the profile, the high profile went to other funds within his former employer's stable. Um, but now, 
after you know a clearly a really difficult time for that particular style of investing and that uh, that approach has returned to in a smaller house um and i think it's a really interesting opportunity for a manager to prove uh, or or justify the faith that investors may well have in him and in committing money to the fund and also to prove that he wasn't operating in the coattails or behind under the coattails of his uh, his former colleague um that uh, you know there'll be many people who just said oh you know it's 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 neil woodford or, or nobody and and now mark has the opportunity to the whole market to demonstrate whether he is um uh, you know a, a good manager in all conditions and also to be frank to uh describe and explain how how he's learnt from the mistakes that he and others have made in 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 recent years. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask, like, with um, that kind of situation, do you think investors would would they kind of expect him to have kind of revamped or revised his approach, or is it more they're kind of worried about now some form of kind of style drift? Um, I don't think there'll be any. Uh, this week, I haven't met with Mark since his move. I don't think there'll be any notable style drift. He he obviously ran money the way he ran money for many years in, in the same way. And um, and so I wouldn't expect anything different at this stage. I think there'll be some recognition that uh, investing in smaller, illiquid companies and unquoted names is probably not a sensible thing to do in an open-ended fund. And, and that will be recognised in the portfolio. I think the portfolio will be probably more diversified and without the huge individual stock and sector bets that maybe he inherited uh, a few years ago in some of the other funds. But, uh, I mean, I think we'll see. I, I, know, I know he's out on the road uh, at the moment and uh, talking to potential investors, but I think it's a really interesting opportunity because obviously we've had over the last couple of years, couple of years a load of value managers, uh, UK equity income managers, uh, move on um, uh, and, the, and the sector as a whole has struggled so I think it's a really interesting opportunity I mean there'll be a lot of scepticism you know people will say equity income is dead and um, you know that style of investing is dead but um, I think there'll be a lot of desire from Mark to prove the the sceptics wrong. I wonder what uh, sort of success would look like as well from from Tellworth's point of view because historically obviously it has been well not historically but certainly for the last decade you know a difficult time to launch equity income funds purely by virtue of the fact it's a very mature sector you know people have a lot of established favorites to choose from that kind of thing i suppose the comparable perhaps on a slightly lower scale um, putting aside the whole woodford launch and, and demise is, is perhaps adrian gosden at gam in terms of a big name mm. setting up somewhere else obviously gam had its own problems um over the past few years but there'll be you know, as you say, the the timing is potentially apposite, not just for value, but also because as a result of those kind of changes in the market, people are maybe reconsidering their equity income allocations, perhaps for the first time in a long time. You know, we've seen a swathe of dividend cuts. And yeah. if not if not now, then when, I suppose, many people will be thinking. So, yes, it will be interesting to see how uh, how he fares and, and how Telworth fare as well on that front. I, I completely agree. I, I mean, I was thinking about this being the most similar comparator fund launch um this morning I, but i would say that uh the difference is that the track record and the reputation that mark had at least within the investment trust community puts it at a potentially at a in a better place than maybe adrian gosden running gam because uh in, it used to be obviously it used to be adrian frost and adrian gosden together 
And whereas it was, you know, um, and maybe when GAM launched their fund, as you said, it was maybe a difficult time, you know, or, or from an organizational perspective. Um, and that fund today is, I want to say, 160, 170 million pounds, something like that. To be, to be frank, I think Telworth would be quite happy if by the end of this year or middle of next year, if the fund was 100 million, I think they'd be very happy with that. Mm. I don't think, I think there's no, uh, I don't believe there's any huge pressure to go out and raise, you know, 200 million pounds on day one. I think they're, they're wanting to do this the right way, which is, um, you know, slowly with a, a you know, a, a bunch of good long-term knowledgeable investors who understand the process and the style and are willing to to support it i don't think they're desperate they're not they're not um you know uh, blanketing the the uh, the fund buying community with uh, with marketing material and and pleas to invest at this stage mm. definitely want to keep tabs on we're going to conclude with uh, sticking with the uk but again a slightly different angle uh, looking at it from an esg point of view and the rise of the sustainable UK equity fund, sustainable may or may not be in inverted commas there. Uh, Stephen, you touched upon this very briefly earlier, but um, I think you wanted to, to say a little more about, about this subject or express a view there. Yeah, it's just, um, it was an observation more than a view, which is that I've had a couple of managers come to me in the last few months talking about their willingness or desire to launch sustainable UK equity funds. And I don't, obviously, I don't need to explain to any any of the listeners to this podcast why uh, managers are wanting to do that. It makes a lot of sense. I just really find it difficult. I find the terminology quite difficult, um, and it touches on what I said earlier about the makeup of the index. When you have such large sectors in such ESG, uh, I, I, what, do you, what word do you want to use? Challenged areas, be it oil and gas, mining you know, governance challenge sectors, perhaps, um, you know, it's going to be a difficult one. The terminology is going to be difficult because you've got a smaller universe than if you had a, just like a global fund, obviously. So you have to make some difficult decisions. You can't just avoid companies and sectors entirely because otherwise, if you do that, you're going to have a basically a mid and small cap growth fund and you may not want to have those biases. So what do you do? You have to nuance your ESG message quite carefully. You have to be a, you know, an engager. You have to be an active investor. You have to, um, you know, be in conversations with boards and management teams of companies to try and get them to improve, rather than just avoid entire swathes of the market. And I just think it's a really interesting challenge for the managers today uh, to communicate that message, and and most importantly, to show how they're engagement or sustainability agenda is actually benefiting the shareholders or unit holders of that fund because everybody can say that they sign up to various bodies and you know do lots of good esg research but how does it actually benefit financially or otherwise the investor in the fund that's what i want to see and i think that's probably the the gap the biggest gap i'm seeing in the sector today i suppose what's also interesting is um uh, coming back to the value debate, and perhaps some investors wouldn't necessarily want that kind of overlay. So I think last year you had, um, for example, Temple Bar put um, the idea of having an ethical approach to its uh, shareholders and got rejected. Uh, yes, well, they, that obviously came with a change of manager, didn't it? And um, and they are, are uh, you know, they have their own views on ESG, which I think are are you know quite well thought through. 
But you're right to say that not all investors will want that. Having said that, as, as you rightly mentioned earlier, it's the UK market is there's quite a, a lot of choice in the UK market. So if a manager you, you know does, uh, does take an approach you, you may not want, then uh, there are other ways to get your UK exposure. But I think, you know, I think in five or 10 years time, we may be at a stage where every, not everything is ESG, but ESG is an integral part of all investment processes, not just what it is today, which is a, an add-on to many. I mean, to use, a, to use a phrase that was used by an investment trust many years ago, uh, you know, for most, ESG is not in their DNA. It's something they are talking about increasingly because investors are talking about it. But maybe in five or 10 years time, ESG will be in the then you know, evolved DNA of more of the investment management industry in the UK. One, um, one thing I did know recently, I suppose another option for, for these UK managers is to, to really maximise that 20% outside of the UK bucket that they can use. I saw um, Royal London who obviously have one of the most popular UK equity ESG funds and one of the most long-standing. They recently, I think, bought a Taiwan Semiconductor for that fund. So uh, making use of that extra 20% is one way perhaps to try and uh, mitigate some of the um, allocation issues. I, I, think, I think you're right. I think, um, I mean, there's a whole, whole broader question here, isn't there, that you know, the UK is only, what, 5% of global equity markets. So it does make sense to, uh, if you can find a good idea elsewhere that maybe fills a gap that you can't uh, achieve from buying UK domestic companies then or UK listed companies, then do it. Of course, the other side of the argument is that the UK is such a global market. You know, name your, name your FTSE 100, you know, the top 20 FTSE 100 companies, and most of them are listed and domiciled in the UK but probably the majority of their earnings do not come from the UK. So, you know, the, the 20% limit is, I absolutely agree, use it, but just be aware that, you know, just pick a name. Vodafone is not a UK company. It's listed. It's, it's, not, it's based out of Newbury, but um, it by, by no means is it is a UK domestic. How then do you feel about um, kind of passives in the context of ESG? Um, there are kind of various funds, whether they're the thematics or whether they are just ESG versions of conventional index trackers um but it's quite quite a divisive topic it is um it's not an area i have a huge amount of knowledge in but what i would say is that uh esg is there's a huge amount of judgment judgmental uh overlay required you know what is you know what passes muster for you or uh, it may be different to what passes muster for me uh, from an esg perspective um, I always remember one manager saying or talking to about the uh, the nuclear industry, how the nuclear industry changed from being a bad, in, a quote unquote, bad industry because of the potential dangers of it. I'm thinking Fukushima and things like that, through to being a, a quote unquote good industry because it produces huge amounts of carbon free energy uh, or you know, low carbon emissions. So um, I. I understand the merits of the passive approach in uh, for an ESG and passives. I just think investors will have to be really careful to be sure that the ESG approach used for creating that that passive fund or ETF aligns with what they they as an investor wants and expects. Yeah, very very individual choice. Well, that's lots of food for thought. Um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you to Stephen, and do keep reading the Asset Allocated newsletter every Monday to Thursday afternoon. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.